everyone, and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? This week it's a bonus episode, and more a case of what the Smart Party did. I went off, as is my wont, to the Kraken Gaming Retreat in the wilds of East Germany. There you get to play lots of cool games, meet exciting people, and have great chats. One of those people was great RPG writer and designer Robin Laws, and I was privileged to get a little bit of time with him to chat about what he's been up to recently, things he's done in the past, and how to be a better writer, and other tidbits. So, here without further ado, a special treat for you all listeners, here's my chat with Robin Laws. Hello everyone, and here we are in the wilds of Brandenburg at the Kraken Gaming Retreat. I'm here with the infamous Robin Laws, game designer. How are you doing, Robin? I'm doing great, how about you? Yeah, living the dream, the sun's out for a change, and uh, we've got a weekend full of games ahead of us. So, can you tell us, in the uh, idiom of our podcast, what you're doing right now, and maybe then we'll work backwards? Okay, so right now, uh, my time is divided between two giant projects, both set in Greg Stafford's World of Glorantha. Uh, so uh, I'm working on, in the uh, tabletop role-playing uh, sphere, the Big Rubble and Pavis, uh, in this case, books, uh, the updating the famous boxes uh, of the same name from uh, RuneQuest II era. And so uh, this is an update not only to... Uh, an advanced timeline where Argraf has conquered the city of Pavis and uh, parceled out uh, chunks of the rubble to his members of his army to uh, 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 pillage and search for artifacts, uh, but also uh, to update a uh, classic seminal uh, couple of uh, setting source books to uh, today's expectations and the needs of, uh, of game masters after another couple decades of uh, gaming development. Uh, I am also uh, I'm switching back and forth between that uh, to uh, the second chapter of the Six Ages mobile game uh, for A Sharp, uh, and in that case, that goes takes me us way back in time to before there was time. <laughs> uh, well, depending on which culture you, you speak to, <laughs> you agree. Um, and uh, this finds the uh, descendants of the uh, clan that you uh, play in the first chapter. Uh, you used to be members of the uh, horse-riding, fire-worshipping, Hyaluring culture, and now, uh, well, you've intermarried with the Orlanthes, and you're now mostly Orlanthe. Uh, but it's the Chaos Age, so the world is dying, and you're trying to manage your uh, clan in an era where there's, there's no pasture for the cows, and there's hardly any plants in the field, and your resources are dwindling, and, and chaos creatures are coming by to, uh, to try and strike deals with you. Um, and so that's uh, uh, Big Rubble is one half of my time. Uh, Six Ages is the other half of my time. And in the third half of my time, <laughs> I still have my oar in at various projects at uh, Pelgrane, for example, uh, overseeing uh, follow-ups to the Yellow King, which we haven't uh, quite announced yet, but are uh, well underway. Excellent. So I know a good friend of the show, Guy Milner, who runs the Burn After Running blog, will be distressed that the fact there's not enough uh, grass for the cows because that's one of his RuneQuest tropes that he loves so much. So in terms of expectation and stuff, when you take something that's uh, 20 years old, like Pavis and Big Rubble, that's got a lot of fond memories for a lot of people and that sort of stuff. Right. So how do you update that while right. keeping the old guard happy, perhaps, and then yes. giving something new? And by 20, you mean like 35, Yeah, right? well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Uh, the uh, viewpoint is a huge issue uh, in uh, because a lot of uh, I'm trying to make it the game that people or the the game product that people remember it being 
rather than necessarily the one that it is when you crack open the box and look inside, now, yeah. or the one that you expected it to be back right. then. Um, so there's a, sort of a viewpoint issue where uh, a lot of spaces, it doesn't actually give you all the information you need mm -hmm. to run a sandbox campaign set right. in the rubble. A lot of it is written in the sort of not entirely clear, quasi-omniscient, but also sometimes ignorant viewpoint of a lot of uh, first wave Glorantha material. Sure. And uh, it will often talk about certain things as being unknown when in fact there are people in the rubble who know those things right. and can tell you if you go and ask nicely. <laughs> yeah. um, but the amazing thing about Glorantha, of course, is that every culture has its own truth, its own story. Yeah. And so um, part of the way this is set up is that for every faction in the rubble, it gives you, first of all, uh, it divides up the knowledge uh, that it provides you according to what we know or what you could possibly know. So, for example, there's just general knowledge of a regular person living in the area. What do they know about dwarves? Then there's adventurer knowledge, which is what you know your characters already know about dwarves without going and talking to them. Right. And then there's the story that they will tell you about uh, their existence uh, starting with just the general history of, of dwarves beginning at the uh, before the beginning of time, although I think they argue that there's always time. What are you talking about? You're crazy. <laughs> um, and uh, and then moving all the way through to the specifics of how those particular dwarves, who are very particular and different, uh, in the big rubble got there and what they think and giving you the, their viewpoint, so that rather than a quasi-objective history, you get a whole bunch of different subjective histories. But also, in the case of every culture, it gives you the characters that you need to go into. Like, if I go over there and try and talk to somebody, if you're using the old Big Rumble book, you have to make up the person who comes to the door to talk to them and what their attitude is, because it's not in the book. There's nothing there, yeah. Um, and same with the trolls. And and also the the elves, for example, in, in the original Big Rumble, uh, it says, well, yeah, the there's this big garden and it's basically impregnable. You can never go talk to them. And here's all these weird plants. <laughs> but we know that players get to do things, especially we want them to do the interesting things. Like yes. going to the garden and not being able to get in is not interesting. No. If going to the as garden, soon as you say you can't get in, then they must think there is a way you can get in and try and find one. As, as well there should be. So now it's like, here's, you know... Again, if you talk to the elves, here's the conditions under which they'll talk to you. Here's the particular elf who will talk to you. And if you meet them, uh, here is what they might, uh, how they might interact with you and how right. uh, if they, you are hostile to them, here's what they'll do. If you try to strike a deal with them, here's what they want. Mm. And here's the thing that they'll ask you to go and do and get in trouble with one of the other groups. Right. So that uh, it's much more activated in terms of sandbox play. Right. Um, and... Uh, uh, so for a, a, another example, the Big Rubble book talks about the Manny tribe who are, seem really interesting, but there's only a, like a paragraph on them and that they're a, a strange, very conservative group of people who worship their ancestor uh, hero who periodically reincarnates uh, back into their clan. And the Big Rubble book, that's, that's all you that's get. Yeah. And so if the players go, that, that sounds really fascinating, let's go talk to them. You're, you'd be like, um, okay, I guess I make something up. Yeah. And the book has to do more of the work for you. So yeah, yeah. in this case, it tells you everything about them. It tells them, yeah, they initially don't want to talk to you. 
like everyone. <laughs> yeah. and then, but if you do talk to someone, here's the guy I talked to them. And again, here's their whole history from their point of view. And uh, right down to, you know, here are their dietary restrictions. And, uh, you know, in fact, uh, who was Manuel? You know, it turns out he was, here's, and he fits into the broader sort of mythology of, yeah. the, uh, of the city and the world. And so uh, there's a lot of really new cool stuff that even if you think you are, uh, you know, even if you've got the original book memorized, this is more than just, uh, you know, kind of a cut and paste job. Because a lot of the different reiterations of RuneQuest products over the years or Glorantha products have sort of repurposed text from previous books. Yeah. Um, whereas this is all new text. Whole cloth so even when it's describing a thing that's the same, like the walls, it's not, I've, I, I'm not just taking the paragraph describing the walls and pasting it in. I'm, it's a new description of the same thing. Right. Gotcha. That sounds excellent. I think that's one of the things from even early days of D&D when they introduced things like uh, rumors that you got about places and there's the false ones and the true ones and the, the partially true ones are the most interesting. It feels like having that and different factions with different views about what's actually happened and they're not necessarily lying to you. They're just sort of like, this is how we see the world and this is kind of going on if that gives you hooks to go in i think that really helps the players as soon as they speak to a second faction who tell you something completely different about the right. same thing and neither faction is lying and trying to pull the wool off your eyes necessarily but it just gives you more interesting that immediately fires the players imagination kind of what might be going on and they know they can get various different versions of things which leads to sort of tourism of the, the big rubble and all that kind of stuff so that's that's great to hear you kind of driving more interaction and the stuff there behind it to back it up as well uh, and another thing that it it does is it tries to flesh out the characters even the characters that are described in existing products tend to the who they are tends to be pretty quickly sketched out and often yeah. it just says they really like this other culture and they really hate this other culture but again that's not enough to actually play yeah um, and so now all the character descriptions are longer and they give you here's uh, uh, their basic demeanor and here's sort of a couple of mannerisms that your voice that you might want to adopt and here's what they want from you and here's their attitude so that everything uh, that you will need to play that character as a GM is, is on the page waiting for you. As always, uh, you can change uh, what that character is 100% if you want to, if sure. that's what you need. But you're not stuck there saying, oh, I guess this guy is tall and <laughs> he speaks in a list, you know, whatever it is. Um, and also, there's so there's a lot of new characters that are introduced, uh, including not there are ones that are glancingly mentioned in the old book and now they're fleshed out, but also because there's a new uh, bunch of sheriffs in town, uh, there's a whole bunch of new characters uh, who are, are uh, have suddenly shown up, swept in by the war. And, uh, and also, some uh, previous characters have been horribly killed because <laughs> there's been a war and you need to feel the, uh, the strength the of, impact of that. that. Yes. Yeah. And if you had a stupid pun name, you were much more likely to die in the <laughs> war somehow. It was a special targeting magic, yeah. I guess. Cool. So um, one of the things I do uh, love about your work previously is you seem to get the feel of the setting. So I have great confidence that the big rubble and the rest will feel that way. Uh, if I can take you way back, you worked on um, some stuff for Earth Dawn, which myself and Baz uh, was one of our favourite games from, from sort of back in the day. Uh, and our, probably our favourite adventure from that line is Infected. I don't know whether you can remember that yes, far back yes. or anything. But that that felt very Earth Dawn, if you know what I mean, compared to perhaps Mists of Betrayal and one or two others could have been more generic. But that Infected was the first one where we thought, okay, now I get this setting and that sort of thing. So 
Is that something you look to do or you feel yourself in terms of getting the implied setting of the world into a scenario? Because I think that's the best way of delivering a setting to players is via the adventures they go on rather than trying to info dump it or you kind of show them things right. in the world. To kind of... Yeah, because the, especially in the fantasy genre, uh, the question is, is this just a generic fantasy idea that you've mildly reskinned for whatever game you're actually running or as you suggest, does it actually go to the heart of what the game is about? Right. And so uh, Infected is, about, is sort of a, uh, a classic kind of strangers come to a weird town um, scenario, which we know a lot from the movies, but we don't see that often in, in role-playing. And in one uh, reason for that is it's kind of open-ended. Mm. And uh, I was a little nervous uh, back in the day about it because it just says, well, it, here's a bunch of things that can happen. Here's a situation. Here's all these people. Here's all these moving parts. And then you interact with it. And uh, that means that uh, often a scenario that is fun to read because it is very coherent and feels like it is already kind of a story is not fun to run or play because in order to be really engaging as a narrative on the page, it's railroady. It, it assume it assumes things that sure, the players will do, yeah. and guess what? You can never assume <laughs> the things that the players will do. Whereas uh, infected just sort of lays out a situation, and that situation, as you suggest, goes to the heart of that setting, which is everybody is afraid of these demonic uh, creatures that are uh, coming back. Uh, that you've uh, you know they scoured the world, and the world is kind of coming back, but they're still all over the place. And so That's right, yeah. uh, that uh, it. Uh, Back when I pitched that idea, it was like, what's the most earth-done idea I can pitch to Lou? And so I said, well, this is, has anyone done this before was the question. It's like, well, not yet. We've just done some things that are kind of regularly dungeony, which was yeah. another part of earth-done, right? The whole yeah, sure. idea was to create a world that in which dungeon crawling would make absolute it sense. It makes sense for yeah. much of the world, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember um, one of the games when Times Baz ran it, we had a friend called Doug who was an elementalist, so I could deal with the elements. And he wanted to speak to the villagers without alerting anyone. So in, his, in the player's mind, he thought it'd be fine to kind of meld with the earth and then pop up. So you've just got a villager who's like, I don't know, farming cabbages or something. Right. All of a sudden, this like, guy's head pops about the ground. So <laughs> like, don't panic. Which yeah, like, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. So that, that, that sort of strikes to what you were saying about you can't expect. Like, the yeah, players will just do something. I could, and I could have not anticipated that. <laughs> Whereas if you're writing a dungeon room, you can anticipate what the elementalists will yeah, do. There's a little bit more of that, which is funny. So do you, how um, so how involved do you get with something then before you write for it? Do you, do you like read another game line if you're asked to write something and then I'm trying to sort of like what, do you have to do research in inverted commas or can you just get a feel for something? Well, the most important research when you're uh, writing for someone else's game uh, to turn this into more broadly general advice is sure. you got you got to play the game right uh, because uh, there are things about it that are not necessarily apparent if you just read it and you can tell. Uh, at least I can tell as someone who occasionally does development work, when a writer uh, hasn't GM'd at all for a while and mm -hmm. is making a lot of assumptions, and also when they haven't uh, played your particular game. Right. And as you were saying, you know, the important thing is to actually key into what is special and different about that game, not just to write something generic for it. Sure. Um, so uh, uh, to briefly jump back to Glorantha for a sec, the ways that the characters will behave uh, differs radically depending on what rule set that you use. And I know there are people who 
take the position that rules don't matter. It's, it's like, no, rules totally matter because you can, uh, uh, the big rubble, the, all the assumptions baked into it are that you are playing with the kind of deadly RuneQuest rules in which it is, you've got to think twice and then a third time and possibly a fourth time before getting into a fight because it is brutal and, ran and randomly brutal. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're playing the big rubble with 13th Age Glorantha, that is based uh, not just on D&D, but on uh, Rob and Jonathan's sort of very power fantasy version of that, where right. the assumption is that getting into the fight is the reward. That's the, point. <laughs> That's the whole point, and you're probably going to win. Yeah. Um, and, and win in an exciting, swashbuckling manner. Yeah. That totally changes your behavior. Absolutely. Uh, and, and yet again, you know, HeroQuest is set to model satisfying narrative, and if you played it with that, you would be able to make different choices. Mm -hmm. um, and so specifically, I am running a big rubble game with RuneQuest. Uh, my long-suffering, wonderful players would perhaps prefer to be <laughs> playing HeroQuest or maybe 13th Age Glorantha because they're more, that's more the way they think. Yeah. Uh, but they're gamefully struggling along uh, in uh, the more deadly and crunchy RuneQuest system because I need to know how they will act under that set of constraints. Right. Um, and so uh, my piece of advice for anyone who is interested in, in role-playing writing is you got to play it and you got to play that specific game that just thinking of how things will go, you're going to get it wrong. A lot of, you know, sometimes developers like just assume that they can't get people who play their games and they have to fix everything to match what they actually want. But uh, you, you've got to play the game in order to uh, run. I've occasionally had a game that my players dislike so much that I had to give up on, uh, after I got the flavor of it, yeah. it's like, okay, I... They can only suffer for your art so much. Exactly, yes. But at least I knew the, uh, and we got to the point where, okay, here's this other game and this is how that, those mechanics work and this is the assumptions that are in play for that game and that world. Cool, so it's good to hear that you, you still GM and you run games and, and get that feel for it. So probably going on 20 years ago, you were Robin's was a good game mastery. But has anything changed from that? Like, I, I don't know whether talking of going back to books from many years ago, would you look back at that and think, it sounds pretty solid? Have you looked at it recently even yourself? Um, I've not looked at it recently. There might be talk of possibly someday in my schedule opening up of, of revisiting that. And so uh, I'm sure when I do that, I will find things that have changed. Uh, a couple of really notable obvious things um, are, uh, first of all, uh, an awareness of consent culture at the table and right. safety tools, uh, which uh, was not Unheard of was not an agenda when yeah. everybody playing role-playing games basically was culturally the same, or all the people who tried to play noticed that all these guys were culturally the same and yeah. left instead yeah. of sticking around and trying to fight for their, their space at the table. Um, and so that would have to go in there. Um, on a more philosophical level, the uh, uh, one of its key observations is that role-playing is... Uh, an art form uh, in which there is no distinction between uh, artist and audience, that you are the audience and you're the creator at the same time. Well, streaming has come along, has made <laughs> role-playing vastly more popular, and it has done so by turning it back into <laughs> passive entertainment. Um, so uh, uh, that is both a uh, brilliant development from the point of view of someone who wants role-playing to have a large audience 
and a drag because it uh, took something that I always say and made it untrue. <laughs> uh, so I have to address that, uh, that as, as well. And there might even be, I think, a character, a player type or two that I did not uh, mention in that book. And then I've done a couple of things over the years that kind of recapitulated that a little, like the AD and, or sorry, the Dungeons and Dragons fourth edition, DMG two, or is that the third edition? I can't even remember. It was the third edition, DMG two, I think that actually, I don't even remember. One of the DMG twos, I was in two of them and it sort of, uh, also, uh, took the player types approach and, uh, it, uh, uh added, I think, a, a player type or two. Cool. Um, I suppose also another thing that I've noticed, there's a little bit of a gap in the market, or, well, you don't even have to sell it, but there's a lot of GM advice or referee advice, that kind of stuff out there and how to DM. Uh, there seems relatively little in terms of how to play. So uh, one of the big things that certainly myself and indie developers in the UK have been mentioned a lot is that uh, the GM is just another player at the table, right? You have a different role, right. you have a different set of rules that you have to abide. Uh, but ultimately, it's everybody's responsibility around the table to entertain. Even if, as you say, streamings come along, so there might be an external audience, but the fun that's happening around that table is everybody's kind of responsibility. So do you have any thoughts around what players could do more or just generally a way to finesse playing to, to get more involved? Or do you still feel that people... Because there still seems to me a little bit when I go to conventions or other places that there's an expectation on the Games Master that they're going to provide the majority of the fun and players get to add little bits in. Um, James D'Amato is, has got uh, some books out now uh, that are aimed at players, at their, their player advice, um, and uh, getting players to, to invest more is partly wishful thinking, I think, <laughs> because the whole thing is that half of the players uh, are perfectly happy with the division of labor in which the GM does a lot, and then they show up on the night and go, uh, I don't know what I want. Like, it's very hard to get players to do homework. Right. But certainly the number of one bit of advice that I would want to give people and hope that they take on board is, uh, you know, you are there to participate. So bring a ball to take and to throw into the middle of the table. And that ball gotcha. is some yeah. sort of idea, some sort of activating thing that other people can hook onto. And you are not so much trying to backseat GM and drive the narrative as much as to throw another possibility into the pile, something that the GM can riff off of and right. that other players can riff off of sure. so that they are, so when you're headed to game that night, just think, especially if you have more of a sandboxy game, think about ahead of time what you might want to do, <laughs> for example, yeah. uh, because we've all had that situation as GMs where we say, okay, so last week, here's what you did, what do you want to do next? And there's just, you look around the table and there's all these blank looks because nobody's even thought about, thought it, about it last week so yeah. you know think about what you're going to do uh if you're headed to game and you don't know what you know obviously if it's the beginning of a new adventure you've got to wait and hear what the premise is and and act on that or you might not even know what your character is but uh but you know in even in a, a one-shot game in a convention when you get your character sheet look at it go okay well what's an interesting idea that i can throw in now you have to be careful that if the that idea doesn't turn out to be compatible with what's going on, that you pull it way back so that it's yeah. just sort of a flavor rather than you trying to then elephant in and you know crush the storyline until it resembles what you had in mind, um, which is basically you know, the improv principle of having have something to play with, uh, but don't uh, try and force everybody to do exactly what you had in mind, then see how other people react and right. adjust. 
and if your idea is a super strong one, you know, don't be afraid to, uh, you know, break character. And when you're engaged with somebody else, say, is it okay if we go down this road, or do you want me to, you know, if, if you want to intimidate me back into place, you can do that. Yeah. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, I'm not super happy with this direction, but usually they're, you know, happy pretty, to go pretty along good, the yeah. way pretty in. Yeah, I think that's right. It, I mean, everybody throws a ball; it, they're not necessarily going to get kicked about. Like some will just roll into a corner and yeah. But a, think of something. Don't yeah, have a blank look when exactly where do you want to go next. No, that's cool. So, um, Trailer Cthulhu and the whole gumshoe ethos, uh, you've run quite a lot for that. So that's, it's not contention, but there's a little bit in there. There's like some old school Cthulhu players who say that Trail's sort of fixing a problem that doesn't exist in that you'll always get clues and the story move on in a narrative fashion. And there's people who say, well, you know, yeah. the well, old Cthulhu's too crunchy and there's too many rules and I like the narrative flow of Trail. So do you think that Trail compared to classic Cthulhu were just two different styles of play and it depends on your preference or uh, the um well they are two different styles of play and it depends on your preference but the particular arguments that you just recapitulated are actually just wrong <laughs> uh, and here's here's why here's why uh, so the the argument that uh, uh it's fixing a problem that doesn't exist i can tell you empirically that it does exist because guess what when i'm at a convention and somebody plays the other way of where you fail to get clues and the story stops dead, people come to the Pelgrane booth to tell me about it <laughs> and say, I wish this game had been run under gumshoe because we started the adventure and the adventure depended on a scan roll at the very beginning where we were supposed to see this thing that would lead us into the adventure. And we failed our roles and so the GM just sat there. So this happens because every other rule set before gumshoe made it explicit said nothing about there's about make sure that they get information because it's more interesting uh, there's you know a failure for boring reasons that leads to a boring result is endemic <laughs> in role playing yeah. it's, it's not just a problem that does exist it's a giant problem um, and even when people do fix that problem here's how they fix it you fail your library use role and then the gm goes oh man they need that information and I guess I'll have to find some other way for them Make to Make an idea it. roll. So, yeah, or, or there's some other, let's have, have some other scene where instead of finding the book in the library, they find the, uh, the oil spatters on the other side of the, the canvas in this other place. So guess what? You just faffed around for 20 frickin' minutes getting them to where they should have been in the first place. Right. How about don't do that? <laughs> and there's all sorts of beneficial effects to not doing that, which is that in that 20 minutes, you could have had fun things going on <laughs> that actually advance the narrative, and you can provide them with all sorts of information, which is what Gumshoe does, uh, that uh, shifts the ground from uh, the fill-in-the-dots of getting from one scene to the next, but here's a whole lot of clues, and you've got to figure out what's going on from them, figure out what's relevant and what's not. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, Obviously, people still love Call of Cthulhu, and I'm not going to say that they're playing it wrong, but that particular problem that Gumshoe fixes absolutely exists, and when you fix it, uh, it uh, re results in a style of play that is much more specifically about investigation, and it is, does that in a much richer way. Yeah, because I think that's something that's people who don't, don't like Cthulhu generally, or that, that kind of genre, the, the common complaint I hear is that they don't like investigative games. 
And I think what they mean by that is that they're spending the three hours going from trying to find a clue and going to the different place where the same clue might be. And right. It's, it's spending a lot of time doing the investigation without anything progressing. So. Right. And they're not actually investigating. They're just, they're just getting the permission <laughs> to move to the next scene. Yeah, absolutely. So are there any other advantages of using gumshoe and that kind of method that you think help story? Because I think some of the things I've noticed from your work tends to be around, if you look at how much hit points and around beats and story and you my perception is, and you, you can tell me if I've, I've got this wrong, but it tends to be more about making a role-playing session uh, like our story with certain beats and rise and fall and that kind of thing. So do you think when you're writing games and systems, do you have that in mind to kind of emulate that? Absolutely. And, and emulate is the particular word that I would use to describe my approach is that it's, it's emulative. It's trying to emulate fiction. Uh, feng Shui, of course, is another uh, example of something that uh, you know, I was looking at all of these great action sequences from the, the great Hong Kong action movies of, of then the late 80s and early 90s. And it's like, wow, these fight sequences are, are really exciting and fun and free-flowing and thrilling. And when you play a fight in D&D, it's like, and now we move here and now we do this. And now I take 20 minutes to think about this. And how, to, how can you come up with a, a, a faster uh, more creative way of uh, portraying fights where you yep. you don't feel sort of that you're suddenly switching from storytelling mode to, to battle map mode. Right. And so that is the absolutely the the thread that runs through everything I do is that what is this medium and how do I uh, portray that? How do I translate it into the role-playing experience? And of course it becomes wildly different in role-playing because role-playing is uh, a completely different storytelling medium uh, and it's not often that a new storytelling medium is invented <laughs> uh, i was lucky to be not on the ground floor of it but on the you know the second or third floor <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, but there's still lots of room to develop that uh, as we go forward so in terms of writing uh, stories and things like that i can't remember what the number is it's something like 38 39 40 stories that someone says there are of just saying, oh, there's betrayal, there's the, you know, there's, there's the basic common ones. Like, is that like a source that you go back to, or do you think, do you get a natural feel for how you might want something to go, or do you try and invent a new story that's not been done before, or, you know? What, you... Well, this is another, I, we're going to enter, if we're not careful, this will turn into a half-hour digression. So <laughs> the, the, all, there's a whole bunch of different, like, there's only X number of plots, there's only 36 plots, there's only... 72 plots or whatever there's a bunch yeah, of different ones and it's like dudes those aren't plots those are premises yeah uh yes there are only so many premises and there are certain archetypal stories that we uh revisit time and again but that's not the hard part Prick, picking your basic premise <laughs> uh, deciding which premise you're interested in may be hard but plotting is the deep dive scene to scene work of building things out of character and situation and the uh, whether you have a procedural character who solves external problems the challenges of making all those problems logical and exciting and fun or dramatic storytelling which arises out of character conflict and uh, making those characters feel real and vivid and express something that matters about the world that's the part of storytelling about fiction that matters the fact that, yes, you can only think of X number of configurations and certain of them are classic ones that everybody returns to again and again because they're simple and accessible, but those are just boxes yeah. in which the actual story occurs. So um, those books that uh, uh, 
tell us that. It's like, uh, thanks, Sherlock. (laughs) Brilliant, brilliant deduction. (laughs) But not all unrequited love stories are the same story. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Self-evidently, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. So um, do you look at other mediums as well still? Is that something, do you look at, for example, improv theater or look at other stories or maybe screenplays or things like that to get any inspiration or? Uh, Absolutely. Um, uh, Every year uh, I do the Toronto International Film Festival and uh, have done so uh, uh, since the 80s. And uh, as I said, Feng Shui came out of seeing those films at the festival and seeing uh, them in, you know, four or five films a day over 11 days. And some of them are great and some of them don't work. Why is that? I think that was a big part of developing my analytical approach and certainly you know any fictional media I consume now whether it's uh, improv theater less it's more about the process of improv than going to an improv show is not right. going to yeah. teach you much um, but you know still whenever I'm reading a novel or watching a television series or watching a film uh, if it's a great version of any of those things I'm uh, becoming engaged and excited by it but on another level I'm still analyzing it and see seeing how it works um, and it is also interest, interesting and useful uh, for beginning writers uh, or developing writers to look at things that don't work and to find out why that is mm. um, as to see great things. Because sometimes the, the really best films, for example, the thing about them is that they are miraculous, is that there's a certain alchemy to them that overcomes all of their elements and becomes greater uh, than the whole. Right. And it's actually kind of difficult often to... You know, how do I make something as mysterious and trippy as uh, as this particular film or that particular film? But if you see, you know, a a crime drama that is that you're annoyed by and you find boring and stupid, it's actually useful to go, well, why, why am I annoyed by this film? What is it doing that I shouldn't do that I should look out for in my own work? Um, And so, quite often, for example. Uh, films that are uh, unengaging are unengaging because they don't address the core question of the narrative soon enough right. or they don't draw you in or they don't give you something to uh, to hope for or conversely to fear and uh, when you see why things fail you can you know when you're looking at your own work and you're wondering why it isn't working oh wait this has the same problem as that stupid motorcycle movie that I saw <laughs> Uh, six years ago and the, right. the characters there's an, I don't care about these characters and why don't I care about them well it's the same reason from that other movie yeah it seems to me it can sound critical because I guess it literally is but you seem to get or I do as well get more from uh, finding the bad things in rather than the good things almost like you can watch a good movie and look, that was great and you can't quite work out how it came together to be great but you can more easily see when something's not working and work out what the bad thing was to right. And it's also infinitely easier to notice what isn't working in somebody else's work than to Absolutely. create something that works in, in your own. Yeah, definitely. So uh, you've been writing for quite some time. and still to be, seem to be making a, a nice living of it, hopefully. Um, for young and aspiring writers, because I think, if anything, the role play industry is, for once, on that upturn where there aren't all the naysayers. I think for many years we've had people going, pronouncing the death of the industry and all that kind of thing. I think we finally got to the point where no one can say that's happening yes. anymore. It's clear that it's going on. Yes, quite annoyingly for some people, it's impossible <laughs> to argue that the hobby is dying. So for anybody who is thinking about uh, taking that route or following your great footsteps or, or other writers, have you got any sort of words of advice? Or I think the most common one I see is like actually write something. That seems to be the thing that a lot of people fail to do. 
and ask lots of questions in advance before putting pen to paper. But have you got any sort of insights or um, tips? So we've already covered play the actually play play the game you're writing for. Um, the other thing is just writing fundamentals. Um, don't just write, but write a lot. Um, uh, Ray Bradbury famously said that to become a good writer, you write ten thousand pages, set them on fire, and then by that time you probably know how to write. Um, there are ways to get faster at that. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I'm uh, focusing on a bit more with my blog entries at Pelgrane, and I'm, we're going to be looking to focus on more, maybe even with like a little video series, is just the technical tricks to make your role-playing game writing interesting. Uh, some of them are just uh, general writing uh, tips. Well, first of all, there's just the AP style stuff, like for goodness sake, you know, if you make a there, there errors or it's, it's errors or basically, your, your. yeah, if there's some sort of bugaboo that you have, the mental block, fix it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you can, for example, uh, if there's something, you know, we have a problem area, do a search and replace to highlight, to reformat, uh, so that, uh, you can set up your word processor to do a word, uh, search and replace and uh, highlight every instance of a problem word in your manuscript and find them and fix them. Right. Uh, that just because uh, role-playing is sort of a little still a cottage industry, uh, I go to bar and I've got some costumes, let's put on a show, but that show should still have technically correct writing in it. Fix sure. those problems. Um, the next level of that is uh, a, avoid not only the passive tense, uh, you know, the goblins were ambushed, uh, but also the use of other dead verbs. So uh, some sentences you have to have, your verb has to be is or be or have, but where you possibly can, reconfigure it so that it has an exciting or just even a more workaday specific word. Right. So uh, uh, the, uh, the Millers are toiling down by the... Uh, by the bank, you say uh, the millers toil down by the bank, right. and that is immediately a more accept, uh, grabby sentence. You can't reconfigure every every sentence to to do that. Do that yeah. But if you've got a lot of ises in a row, your uh, prose is going to be kind of dead. Um, in role playing, particularly, we have a weird uh, conditional future. Uh, not tense, but mode or something, but yeah. there isn't even a word for it. The players will do this. The thing. players will do this. Yeah. And you can always, uh, uh, always drop the will. Um, so, uh, you know, the dragon will come around the corner and hit you with a fireball. You say the dragon comes around the corner and hits you with a fireball. Yeah. It means the exact same thing, and it's punchier. So, like, write succinctly. Uh, another thing is your sentences probably run on too long. Uh, cut them out. Uh, writers have too many, often they're trying to say too many things in one sentence. Uh, often in role-playing, you want to say that here's the general uh, thing that, you know, uh, Orlanthi are boisterous, uh, but many of them are also uh, calm There's in the correct circumstances. <laughs> right. um, and so uh, uh, you, uh, if you're trying to sort of contradict yourself within a sentence, you're often resulting to, resorting to uh, brackets or uh, long dashes. Um, and you want to untangle your syntax and right. not, not try to hit so many exceptions and do yeah. things all, all at once. Uh, uh, people love to put in 
uh, scare quotes to indicate irony or for reasons never, <laughs> never do that. They use too many brackets. Uh, so untangle and, uh, your syntax and shorten your sentences would be another general uh, writing tip. But in order to get there, you got to do it. You got to do lots of it. You got to sit down and actually write. And mm -hmm. I think people, uh, there's the barriers to entry and role playing have, were already low. Um, and have gotten lower still. So sure. I think a lot of people kind of jump in and can get sort of a claim for content that people like and find interesting, mm -hmm. but they haven't written their 10,000 pages yet. They don't have the chops. And uh, you can get there faster by following tips like the ones I've just listed, but you got to sit down and you got to do a bunch Still of writing. To do the work, yeah. And that's tough for people because when you're starting out, it's a, a sideline. It's, it's, they've got a day job and... Uh, writing uh, often is, is not fun. It's hard work. Mm. Uh, but you've got to put in the work in order to, to uh, get the results. And, uh, you know, just like any art form, if you're an illustrator, you spend a lot of time learning proper anatomy and lighting and shading and how to draw a freaking horse. And uh, <laughs> for writers, I would also say you have to also learn how to, how to describe a horse without, without, <laughs> a variety of horses without, without too many parentheticals. Yeah, it's that 10,000 hours thing, isn't it? That you've, yeah. Whatever you're doing, you put the time in. Um, yeah, it seems like sometimes um, people coming from a GMing background, perhaps, so they're, um, they're trying to put in caveats and work out everything that could possibly happen and then try and give it to someone. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, certainly I agree with what you're saying there, a lot of it is keep it terse and just give you the correct information so that someone at the table goes, what's happening right now as they read the paragraph and you know they just have the information they need they can make their own exceptions about whether this particular oral anthe is a quiet one or whatever else you don't have to right caveat I, everything, yeah and, well you kind of do have to put in caveats a lot of time because you know somebody's kind of going to come back at you online and say well not everyone right. can possibly be <laughs> so you there are times when you want to indicate to what degree your general statement is you know, is this a 60% yeah. statement and 80% is it really categorically all all members of this alien race are uh, cantankerous uh, could be right that would be interesting to have a alien race where everybody had the same personality type um, but uh, you uh, need to do so in a way that is that flows well and is uh, easy to read and to follow and to understand and that isn't you're not tangling yourself up in syntactical not right sure i found it quite interesting myself and baz did um, an adventure each which we we just picked D, D because that's the most ubiquitous uh for our patrons and we switched that uh we sort of switched over after we'd written one each and we'd written two completely different scenarios as it turned out um and i also got um an editor a line editor friend of mine to, to sort of look over it and he said <laughs> one of his comments was like you use ostensibly a lot and when i checked the document it was like two or three times but right apparently for the word count that was a lot and yes. I, I hadn't realized so probably if i may add another tip on the end it's like get someone else to read your work and give you feedback on it because other people will see things that you just don't see yourself right? yes and in particular like the whole issue of which words are overused and which ones are not um, the more unusual and longer and abstract a word the less you should repeat it so uh, ostensibly is you know a classic a classic <laughs> um but uh you know simple nouns like sword or horse or uh, ground uh, don't stick out in the same way um, and when she, once now that you know ostensibly is a fallback word for you, uh, you can use that same method I mentioned before, where you can search your document for every instance of the word ostensibly and see maybe 
how many times you use it. You can also use uh, like a word cloud uh, thing to, that will count all the instances of words yeah, and you will see, uh, you know, if you see extensively pop out on you that you go, oh, wait a minute, that's, <laughs> that's my bugaboo again. Go sort it out, yeah. So I, I guess um, being professional industry, you will have editors and things like that. I mean, do you still, I, I presume you're not precious about your work because this is what you do to so expect to hand work in and get feedback on it and, and redo it, but... Um, when, when my developer is wrong, I will. Well, obviously, when, <laughs> when they are patently incorrect, yeah. Uh, but the, obviously editing is a skill as well, so I guess that's another area where there's, are there different types of editors? It seems like, it seems a more technical role pack, so perhaps you get a more consistent across the board than writers, I don't know. Have you got any insight to that? Um, it's more noticeable in fiction that different editors will have different tastes, and you may notice after a while that uh, an editor who's sending you notes, you may or may not be in tune with their aesthetic, that uh, they may want you to be very specific about, say, physical staging in a way where it's like, I don't care about that. I don't think right, readers actually care about that. Right. Uh, someone may ask for a bunch more description and you may prefer spare description. Um, but uh, in role-playing, uh, the notes that you get back are, I think, usually more on the... They may say, knock off the ostensibly's, but it's more often a question of, are you actually envisioning the use of this thing during play? And so uh, a, a great developer will notice when you uh, are just sort of providing information, for example, that the uh, players have no access to. Right. Um, and, uh, or writing in a, in a scenario. And then the bad guy escapes. It's like, uh, yeah. you know there's a rule system <laughs> In this role-playing game, that, that you can't guarantee that will happen. Right. Um, so, but yeah, in general, uh, uh, the more kind of technical-ish the writing is, the uh, the less you will notice the individual personalities of your editors. Cool. So, as we're in the schloss, it behooves me to to mention that you've written uh, at least one chatbook for for Fabian. For, uh, there's for, two of them. Actually. There's two. There's yeah. a, a one about. Uh, creating uh, sharper adventures for uh, Hero Quest, uh, which has a lot of actually general information about how to create an adventure that has a lot of choices in it that isn't a railroad, um, and that came out of Fabi's uh, sorry that came out of Fabi's observation that uh, a lot of uh, classic RuneQuest uh, adventures and therefore also Hero Quest adventures are just sort of tours where you kind of move around and watch things happen and they're right. that yeah. activated. And so this is more, uh, again, going back to that big rubble issue of making things that assume that you're just sort of taking a tour of Greg's world to you're in the middle of Greg's world and it's coming at you, what do you do next? Yeah. yeah. And what was the second one? And the second one is uh, uh, called uh, Mother of Monsters and it's actually a, an adventure that then takes those principles and shows them uh, being used in, in play. Excellent. That's good stuff. So, do you have um, a, like a personal preference for writing projects? Is it just kind of you hand them out, but grateful for anything that comes your way, or do you, are there things that you particularly enjoy rather than others? Or well, not that you don't enjoy all your work, because clearly right. you do. Well, I'm very fortunate that I uh, have a lot of uh, control over what I uh, take on, and uh, what I'm always looking for is either some uh, something that has. Uh, some possibility to innovate or refine or to uh, so uh, with the various gumshoe games my question is not is how do I 
make this particular project special? How do we make this right. stand out? How do we continue to advance the, uh, the tools and, and mechanics of, of role playing? Um, and also something that has a sort of an emotional charge to it. And it's about people in some way and it's about something that matters. So a book that is just describing a whole bunch of pieces of gear or you know, detailed descriptions of physical locations is not a thing that I'm super excited about. I want gotcha, something yeah. that has a more narrative punch and a possibility of driving the medium forward. And do you find yourself having things that you want to talk about or include? So, look for a project where you think, do you have like a, like a little black book of ideas that are kind of bubbling away in the background, thinking I'll, I'll wait for an opportunity to use this sort of idea, or do you find that you can just naturally? Write um, it it has whatever? to be more organic than that. That if there's something that inevitable like you come up with bare ideas of cool things all the time but those never actually amount to anything because they exist uh outside of their original purpose right so uh the process of design is to find out what is my you know what am i shooting for here how am i realizing this particular goal what is my design goal how do i pursue that and how do i then uh, and even as you do that you'll i always at the end of a manuscript process i will notice that things I thought I needed at the beginning, I didn't need, um, and so I will take them out. So, uh, for example, in the Yellow King role-playing game, originally there was the idea that a lot of the shock cards would revolve around sort of personality flaws and uh, things that you were susceptible to, like alcoholism or addiction or what have you, um, and that sort of came out of something that was in uh, Gumshoe one-to-one. Uh, and uh, Yellow King on a technical level takes some of the, the one-to-one ideas and moves them back into multiplayer in a radically reshaped form. Um, and so that was something I thought I would need. And then when I got to the end of it, it's like, no, you know what? This is uh, the problem it is solving uh, is very small. And the problem it is introducing of being another thing to think about during character generation and to worry about that will never come up right. is much bigger. So I just stripped it out and, and took it out. And so uh, I'm, my impulse is always to streamline as much as possible and uh, see you know, how uh, far we can you know, strip things back. So for example, the original Gumshoe games had really long uh, investigative ability lists. And I think uh, in some cases still should have those because uh, for example, the Ezoterrorist is trying to kind of do a Tom Clancy style or sort of CSI uh, hyper-realism applied to the occult and in those genres it's the fine-grained grain, versions of different skills yeah. are very important are very part of the genre whereas sure. a Yellow King uh, each character basically will have like four investigative abilities because that more effectively models uh, a more general investigative sure. things where people are always going back to the lab broader. to look on slides and right, things. right and it, or it's, it's not like everybody is a lab tech and you have to have a different lab tech specialty for each person. Gotcha. So how we found that uh, Yellow King's uh, landed, because there's been a lot of buzz around it and the Kickstarter and everything. So uh, have you any feedback on it? Or Well, literally, we were waiting for it to land because it's <laughs> either on a boat or it's just come off a boat. Uh, so uh, the uh, we've been in this sort of weird situation because we uh, had a series of misadventures adventures with a printer that was uh, the short version of the story is that uh, Pellegrin thought it was dealing with a German printer and it turned out they were dealing with a German print broker who was printing with different Estonian printers right, okay. and the 
their representative was basically spiraling out of control and out of okay. their job. And so, so basically it's taken a year from them getting the print files to us getting the book. So wow. uh, it's, hopefully we'll be able to rebuild um, momentum and get feedback. But the people have had the PDFs for a year exactly. and they've been playing it. And, uh, and I think people are very excited by the, the new additions that it adds to uh, Gumshoe and also the, the setting I think people have been really engaged by. So I'm uh, really looking forward to finally physically having the object in my hand and, and other people having that and, and uh, seeing it sort of splash out. So I think hopefully in the next six months we'll see that effect more. Yeah. I think the team, I don't know if it's a Kickstarter thing or whatever, but there seems to be a longer tail on a lot of projects as well. So I think uh, the people in the market are more uh, accepting of that. So if you look at a game like Blades in the Dark, for example, that was probably played for about two years before it actually was out as a, as a product. And um, I know the majority of the market's D&D, but if you take everything else, I think the fact that there's been a bit of delay is not too bad of a thing. As long as you've got the PDFs, I think there's still excitement and people will play and replay and, and post about it. So, And, and also, Pelgrane uh, readers are like, they're, it's the most awesome fan base. Super loyal. Like, yeah. Super loyal and super understanding. And uh, they, uh, you know, and the answer when there's a delay is like, well, we want this right. We don't want this yeah. a, a not good version of it quickly. We want the good version the of it. And, version we're, and people have been very understanding and have been willing to wait. And we'll take that game and go out and play it and introduce it to people. So uh, we're in good hands because we've been... Uh, able to uh, cultivate uh, a, uh, an, an audience that is superior in every way <laughs> to a hypothetically crummy audience. <laughs> There's some other game. Yes. We'll remain nameless. Excellent. So um, one of the questions we always ask a guest, uh, I'll put it on the spot a little bit, is are there any other games or, or things you've read or perhaps from other mediums that at the minute you found interesting that perhaps our listeners might want to check out? Um, well, I'm going to cop out on that and say that... Uh, as part of uh, the podcast that I do with uh, Ken Hype, Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Every week we have a Ken and Robin consume media yeah. uh, text feature uh, where we tell you what we've been reading and seeing that week. And that's uh, the best way to get the freshest recommendations, which is my way of trying not to remember anything while I'm jet lagged <laughs> here at the, at the Schloss. Uh, no, that's perfectly yeah. fine. I recommend everybody goes and looks at Kratos. Um, yeah. We're fans of that show as well. And, uh, we were also one of the top 10 podcasts of last year, according to Morrissey's and uh, Wills. Oh, well, there you go. Program, so in, in great company. Well, you and I can go and fight some lesser podcasts. That's right. With, yeah. that, with that power. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's been great to speak to you. Thanks very much for your time, Robbie. Uh, thanks a lot. Cheers.